from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This time, a former Suns player who you might remember as T-Rex. More video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's mugshot, and we are learning a lot more about the charges. What's the drinking culture like in the NHL? I was a partier. I had to be in the action. I wasn't a guy that just sat at home and drank. It's got a hold of me again. Please, God, take this obsession away. I was all alone in a crowded room, if that makes sense. Can't. You're an alcoholic. You need help. You can't do it alone. You're not invincible anymore. Welcome to Charges. I'm your host, Rex Chapman. Today on the show, we have a pioneer, but not in the way you might think. Ken Danico is a legend in New Jersey and the NHL, a three-time Stanley Cup champ and is affectionately known as Mr. Devil. He's all-time career leader in games played for the New Jersey Devils. Ken was a hard-nosed defenseman who was always ready to get physical. But I did say he was a pioneer, just not on the ice. Ken was the first NHL player to publicly take advantage of a program the league and the Players Association bargained for where players could step away from the game of hockey, even during the season, to get treatment for drugs and alcohol. During the 1997 season... Ken utilized that program for his problem with alcohol. This is Charges. Charges. 
Ken, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you, my buddy? I'm doing good, Rex, and thank you for the warm, warm welcome. Yes, I was first uh, publicly in the program, but I think uh, I talked to the guys now, and I think I'm number five on the all-time list. The other four went privately, and that was their their choice. You could do that as well. So I've got that going for me. <laughs> <laughs> Truly brave. I mean, I you know I played. I was playing ball in the '90s, and. You know, that was something that, uh, you know, not a, I know people in basketball weren't doing that. So that, that was a brave step, my friend. Well, and you know what, Rex, at the time I had such great support from the Devils organization. And that was important because obviously you're very scared that what's it going to do for, to my career? Are they going to just uh, throw me by the wayside after because I'm going through some problems? And it was in season early in the year. I think I had played, oh, a handful of games and I was playing well and I, I just, for whatever reason, I wasn't right. And, and I knew long ago uh, I probably had some problems with alcohol, but uh, it's hard to admit it. It's hard to get humble and understand that uh, something's got me and I need help. And uh, the game was so important to me. My team, the Devils, I'd been there my entire career, so I'd already been there 14 years as a player before I'd walked into uh, Hall of Fame general manager Lou Lamorello, who had been always in my corner, and he was tough on me at times, rightfully so. But having said that, he knew exactly what I was coming in for. And I said, Lou, you know, if I'm going to take this seriously and, and get my life together, I have to step away from the game for a little bit. And, you know, without hesitation, Lamorello goes, Ken, you've got our total support. Uh, I'm not blind. I've seen what's gone on in your life. You and I have been, had a lot of talks and I've been in the office a lot with you, but, uh, take your time as long as you need, the team will be here for you. And that was real comforting to me. Yeah. I mean, that's an ally right there. I mean, that's just huge and beautiful. You grew up in Canada in the seventies, Ken, what was that like? And where did you grow up? I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Western Canada. I was born in Windsor, Ontario, but I always say I'm from out west because we moved very young. My father transferred out to Edmonton from Windsor, Ontario, where I was born. And what was it like, Rex? Well, when you came out of your mother's womb, if you didn't put a pair of skates on, you had nothing else to do. That's what it was like. <laughs> and I was no different than a lot of kids uh, on the block, I love the game of hockey, and I would go out in 10, 15, 20 degree below zero weather and skate on the rinks, the ponds, whatever it was. It didn't matter how cold it was. I had a passion for the game at, oh gosh, six, seven years old and loved it. And I grew up in a neighborhood with friends that all were hockey players. If we weren't playing street hockey, we were going to the pond, we were going to the outdoor ice rinks and and playing some shinny, and uh, I just uh, fell in love with the game like a lot of Canadians do over the years. <laughs> Did you like the skating? Did you like the camaraderie? Did you like all of it? What was it about the hockey that just, you had it? I think the best way I can describe it, I mean, obviously you love all the those aspects, the skating and puck handling and it was the competition for me. I like to compete. And obviously, uh, growing up, it was about winning for me. It always was. I, I wanted to be part of a team. I wanted to be part of a foundation. It didn't matter what level, even at a young age. And I tell people, you know, I told my mother 
a handful of times a day from seven years old on, I'm going to play in the National Hockey League. That was my dream as a little kid. That was it. We'd watch Hockey Night in Canada together, get around the TV after a spaghetti and meat sauce dinner every Saturday night and watch Hockey Night in Canada as a family. And families throughout the country, that's what you did. And uh, right from there, I said, I'm going to play in the National Hockey League, Mom. And, And God rest her soul, she passed about eight years ago. She used to always pacify me and go, yeah, yeah, Kenny, I know. But I think she thought I was dreaming a little bit high because there was 10 Ken Danicos on every corner where I grew up and every corner through Canada and obviously the United States where the game has grown tremendously back when I came in the league when I was drafted in 82. It was more Canadians and the majority were Canadian hockey players, regardless of the teams being in the United States at the time. But but I just had a dream and my mother... I uh, wasn't so sure I was uh, maybe reaching a little bit high. <laughs> I, can, I, I've, I heard those same conversations. I had those same conversations with my folks. Uh, what were your hobbies as a teenager, for better or worse? Uh, was fighting and drinking a part of that, or was that acquired oh. behavior? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a, a teenager, uh, I mean, obviously hockey was a team sport and camaraderie. I left home real young, Rex. I mean... Uh, playing minor hockey, and I was obviously a pretty good player. But like I said, there was so much talent. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I was a good player, and when I'd turned 14, you get put on a list to play junior hockey. And if I was going to fulfill my dream, I, I wanted to take whatever steps necessary. And by around 15 years old, I knew, well, maybe there's a chance here. Maybe I have an opportunity to keep climbing the ladder, so I have to go play and advance my career at at whatever level and junior was the next step. And I had to leave home at 15 years old. And it was a tough, tough decision from the standpoint that my father's born in Germany, raised in Germany, was a soccer guy, not as much a hockey guy, but he learned to love it moving to Canada. He moved at 22 and didn't, didn't speak a word of English till about 23 or 24, but he, he supported me and, and met my mom in Canada, obviously. And so my mother said, over my dead body, you're leaving at 15 years old. Now, I know the dynamic was a little bit different back then. Today's <laughs> day and age, I would never let my kid leave at 15. Right. I have a 22-year-old son right, right now and a 26-year-old daughter. So my dad took me aside. Old school guy didn't say a whole lot. He was just a solid support system. And he says, Kenny, is this what you want? And I said, Dad, this is going to help my career. They're asking me to go to Yorkton, Saskatchewan to play Tier 2 junior hockey the Western Hockey League team, the originally Great Falls Americans that had put me on their protected list and said, we think you're ready to jump right from Bantams to junior hockey, but you're going to have to move 500 miles away because we're affiliated with this Tier 2 team in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League in mid Midwest Canada. So my dad says, look, and this is a true story. He goes, I had two days to decide, and the coach of the Yorkton Terriers was going to pick me up at a gas station outside uh, Edmonton, Alberta, and drive me back to Yorkton, Saskatchewan. I said, Dad, this is what I want to do. I said, uh, you know, it's a big step, but he goes, we're not going to tell your mother. I'm going to drive you there. I will handle her. She'll get over it in a couple weeks because we don't want to have that hassle. And that's, <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> so I went to the gas station, got picked up by a coach named Jerry Bullets at the time, and went off to Yorkton, Saskatchewan to play for the Yorkton Terriers. I was one of two 15-year-olds in the league, Rex. Wow. And I was young. I was physically mature because I was big, I was strong. Yeah, I was physical. And that's where probably it was a 
good for me, but on the flip side, from a life standpoint, I was still a kid, mm-hmm. and I'm playing with 17, 18, 19-year-old uh, guys. And there's so a big difference dr- at that age. Yeah, That's a big yeah, difference. Drinking, drinking became a big part of it. It was play hard, party hard, yeah. right from a young age. And, you know, you look back, you reflect all the extracurricular activity and the partying and the drinking was always there. But again, I I had one goal. And one thing I will say humbly, I I had the discipline and the work ethic and the heart to always just pull my bootstraps up and, and understand what comes first uh, until later on. And we'll get into that after. And you can ask me some questions when the drinking really took hold of me. So you're drafted. And at what point though, you're still a teenager at what point do you know that this sport is going to take you places? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, 1982, I'm 18 years old, and that's when there was no internet, obviously, no cell phones. And, and you go back in your day, the same idea. Now they know everything about you when you eat, sleep, go to the bathroom. But back then they relied on one scout that would follow you around. Or, or a guy, and they would take recommendations. Now, I was not ranked to go in the first round. There was 21 teams. At the time, I was cautiously optimistic I was going to be drafted, but I still was uncertain because I always had that in the back of my mind. I, I, I don't know. How good am I? Am I any good? I know I played pretty well in junior and had a pretty good playoffs my draft year. So the summer of 82, the draft's in Montreal, two-hour time difference. So... I go out the night before with my brother, who's five years older, to take a little edge off. Had a few pops, <laughs> you know, knowing the drafts the next day. I'm very nervous and just praying I get drafted, you know. Just pray I get drafted somewhere, anywhere. It doesn't matter what round. So about 40 minutes into the draft, I'm sleeping. I'm out like a light. My mom walks up to my bedroom and says, Kenny, wake up. You got to take this call. I go, mom, I look, I take a peek at the clock with one eye. I go, mom, it's way too early. I know what time it is in Montreal. There is no way I'm drafted yet. And I was serious. I, she goes, Kenny, just, my mom was a petite lady, a five foot one, very quiet, comes, just come downstairs and take this call. I go, I thought it was a friend playing a prank. I said, it's probably friends playing a prank, you know. Hey, Kenny, you know, congratulations. You've been drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. You know? so, <laughs> and I really believe that. I go down there, I, I pick up the phone, groggy voice, go, hello. Uh, he goes, hi, Ken, this is Marshall Johnson. Congratulations, we've just picked you 18th overall. And I still get goosebumps saying it and, and almost tears because I dropped the phone. I never asked who it was. <laughs> I dropped the phone, swear to God. I, I'm, I'm going to my mom. I turn to my mother and I go, you're not going to believe this. And it still brings me me tears. Like it goes, I just got drafted 18th overall. My mother, who has never sworn her life, a little Catholic, goes, you've got to be bleeping me. Like she was just dumbfounded beside herself. She goes, well, ask who it is. I pick the phone up. I go, oh, yeah, who is this? He goes, it's Marshall Johnson from New Jersey. Didn't have a team name yet. No no team name. They had just moved from the Colorado Rockies and became New Jersey, the late great owner who was so in my corner too, Dr. John McMullen, who happened to own the Houston Astros at the time as well, bought the team from Colorado, moved them to New Jersey, so this was a big risk for him, and I was one of his two picks in the first round, and there was no team name. They were voting in the 
Star Ledger, the Newark Star Ledger paper still on what the team name was going to be and let the fans vote. And we didn't have a ton of fans at the time, really, but uh, it ended up being the New Jersey Devils. But I will tell you, Rex, I would have ran the 2,000 miles from Edmonton, Alberta. I don't care if they were sending me to Siberia. I wanted my opportunity uh, to play. This was my dream as a young kid. This was the first step getting drafted. I went way higher than I expected. And it was one one scout, Burt Marshall was his name, and he had followed me around in a beat-up Winnebago for about 10 days, he had told me. And I talked to him in 2012 about this because I didn't know the real story, but this is true. He says, Kenny, I told the New Jersey Devils at 18, you've got to take this kid, Ken Danico. They didn't really know who I was much. They, you know, obviously you scout, but there just wasn't as much information and access. And they go, Bert, he's not ranked there. We're not taking him. Bert Marshall said, I'm putting my job in line. He says, Bert, if he doesn't pan out, you are putting your job on the line. He says, because we really don't, they were not going to take me from what I understand. And Bert confirmed this in 2012 to me because I gave him a big hug, 2012. The draft was in New Jersey. I happened to see him because he's still scouting at the time for Carolina. And I go, Bert, I, I just want to come up. I heard a story that, you know, Devils didn't want to take me, and I gave him a big hug, and I said, you know, I, it never goes unnoticed. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for believing. He goes, Kenny, you don't know half the story. He goes, I begged them. They Right up till the draft, they were not going to take you. I said, I will put my job in line. He says, and I thank you because I'm still scouting because of that pick because the eighth overall pick was Brian Trache's brother, wonderful guy, but he only ended up playing 25 games in the National Hockey League. I was 18th overall, and... And then played 1,283 regular season games, wow. 175 more in the playoffs. But that's kind of what Bert says. He said to them, I'm telling you, this kid will play 10, 15 years for you. I followed him for two weeks. I know his heart. I know his character. And uh, nobody wants to win more. And that made me feel, it makes you feel good, you know. And we laughed about it and hugged. But I just wanted to make sure he understood this was one guy putting all his eggs in one basket at the draft and believing in, in a person and a player and, Back then, they had to because they had to trust their scouts, and they weren't going to, but they did. <laughs> Man, it's so true. I mean, it, it, kudos to him because, you know, and you've been around the sport a long time in round front offices and whatnot, and a lot of times, guys just want to keep their job. And to put your neck on the line and say, no, look, I believe in this, that's what separates the good ones or the bad <laughs> ones from the great ones. As we've explored in previous episodes with Chris Knuckles Nyland on the NHL and Jim Leyritz on the Big Apple, the party when you're a drinker and in the pros finds you. The ferociousness and tenacity that Ken Danico played with on the ice would be the same for his alcohol consumption. Work hard, party hard. That would be his calling for 20 seasons and even into retirement, rinse and repeat. It's enough to bring even the biggest bruiser to their knees. Little did young Ken know what lay ahead for him on his road to hockey immortality. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So you're called up. How'd you celebrate when you're called up to the <laughs> called up to the NHL? You know what? It's all a blur back then, but I'm sure I went out and I, I know I went with some friends and we all got together at a house and what do we do? We drink. We drink. We have fun. We have a good time. And you know, that's all I knew. It was play hard, party hard really back then. But but I was excited and I was over the moon and and boy did I train hard that summer, uh going into my first camp and and obviously, uh, I got into exhibition games as an 18-year-old. doesn't mean you're going to make the team right away because they can still send you back to junior. I went back to junior my first year. So I have to tell you this quick story. This is a good one, Rex. So my second exhibition game is against the, the great New York Islanders. They were a dynasty at the time. They just finished winning four straight Stanley Cups. I had such admiration for their team. And I was a student of the fighters and of players, and even as a young kid. And they had the likes of some of the toughest customers in the league, Bobby Nystrom, Clark Gillies, guys that I'm friends with today. We play in golf charities together. I, I love those guys, just uh, wonderful people. So I'm going to get noticed. It's game two of my exhibition uh, career for the Devils as an 18-year-old. So John Tonelli, a great hero over the playoffs for the Islanders, 
goes in the corner and I come across full bore and absolutely jump into him, knock him, feet go up in the air. He goes flying, head hits the ice. And all of a sudden there's a big scrum and I get grabbed around the neck and I turn around and elbow this guy right in the head, you know, just cause it's a big melee and, and it's a big scrum. I turn around, it's Bobby Nystrom and I'm going, Oh my good God. I think I've bit off a lot more than I could chew for my first national hockey league fight. So I'm going, I'm in deep trouble here because Bobby Nystrom was known to be one of the best fighters in national hockey and he was a wild man and I'm going, I'm dead here and I'm going to do whatever I can to stay alive. So Bobby turns and looks at me. We have gloves off. He holds me and goes, kid, I respect what you're doing out here because I was that young guy once too. He says, we're not going to fight on this opportunity. He says, but just take it easy out there. I, I looked him in the eye. I said, thank you, Mr. Nystrom. <laughs> Bro, that gives me chills. So gives Bobby Nystrom and me to this day, we play in charity outings. I see him in the off season. And about three years ago, we told the story when we were at Clark Gillies has a big golf charity in Long Island. We told the story and Bobby was just on the, on the ground rolling. And he says, yeah, I vaguely remember that Kenny. And I, I said, Bobby, you don't know how appreciative I was at the time. I was 18 years old. I was not ready to fight you just yet. <laughs> and he was so respectful, kind of that guy that he says, just go easy, kid. I know, I understand you're trying to make a name for yourself. Man, that is just beautiful. <laughs> that is just beautiful. Good grief. The Rangers famously win the Stanley Cup in 94. And the New, <laughs> New York City loved it, of course. But then the very next season, your Devils win it in 95. Of all the trophies in sports, the Stanley Cup, tell me about the moment you win it and the first moment you got to hoist that trophy. Well, I'll tell you, Rex, 94 was the step for our team and a devastating step because we lost the Eastern conference finals to the New York Rangers right. in double overtime in game seven and had a lead in game six to close out the series two nothing. So all these things come into play as far as when you, you hear you got to lose before you win, you got to understand what it takes. And they had a great leader who I grew up with Mark Messier, one of the best leaders in sports who I grew up with in Edmonton, Alberta, by the way, a little older than me, he was a mentor of mine, but all the friendships stopped when he got traded to the Rangers because it was such a big rivalry. And, you know, he'd guaranteed a win in game six. We had them down 2 nothing, And we just didn't know how to close the deal. Mark took over, but obviously we tightened up. And that was our lesson to be learned. And we were more prepared for 95. We were able to turn the switch on the plus. We were the two best teams in 94 in the regular season. And if we beat the Rangers, we felt no disrespect to Vancouver Canucks. We were going to win the cup as well. So as devastating as that was, it, the pain was eased by winning the cup in 95. And that was my second dream playing road hockey as a 10 year old. I'd carry a silver garbage can over my head, pretending it was the Stanley cup, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> 
So you've worked your way up your mainstay in Jersey at this point, the New York metropolitan area, and they love hockey. What was it like uh, on and off the ice around this time? New York's, I'll put it this way and summarize, New York City chewed me up and spit me out many a night. I was a kid from a small Western Canada town for the most part, going to New York City and a kid that liked to have fun. And I'm going out to the China Club and different clubs and they treated me like royalty because they loved athletes and loved, loved me and I'm seeing celebrities and actors and actresses and I'm having the time of my life, Rex. So it chewed me up and spit me out. And obviously 12 years later, we win the Stanley Cup uh, and the party began. I mean, uh, this is something that's really was kind of planted the seeds where I knew I had a problem. And boy, it's, uh, it's so long ago, but it brings back good and bad memories from the standpoint. I had just won the Stanley Cup. I, the ultimate goal after going on some benders, partying, New York, New Jersey, the Jersey Shore, everywhere, you, you name it, I brought the cup everywhere. I partied everywhere with the fans. I was one of those blue-collar guys like the state of New Jersey, our great fans. They they loved me. I love them. We're nothing without the fans. I still believe that today and have time for them uh, anytime they ask me for the 50th picture because without fans, we're nothing, and I'll always believe that. So I, I had partied my you know what off my butt off and two months in i'm empty completely empty and i'm i'm going what is wrong with me i really had to sit down and and do a uh, you know some soul searching and and i knew it was wrong with me i didn't want to admit it i had a drinking problem i drank too much i partied too much and it hurt and i and i had guilt and shame and and i had a ton of fun and did things that we'd need a five-hour podcast <laughs> what was your what was your age here ken what how old were you i was so 95 geez i have to do the math but uh i was about 32 years old when we won our cup and you know that's when i really started to recognize i gotta take care of myself so privately in 95 before i went public in 97 to my second rehab i went to a rehab in canada on my own, I didn't even tell the the team, anybody, because that's when I was real scared that uh, if I tell them I, I need help, if I tell them I've got a drinking problem, you know, could it end my career? Are they going to, you know, stick by me? And so I talked to family and supportive of uh, my family around, uh, around here and, and went to rehab, and I gave an earnest effort. I was there for 30 days. I... I was like that model school student. I really took it serious at the time and went into the season strong and felt good, stayed sober for about five months at the time, but it planted the seeds. And if they, anybody thinks uh, you're going to be a first-time winner, it just doesn't happen that often. Yeah. I'm sure you know a little bit about that, I Rich. Do. But I was there for the right reasons and obviously still had to do some more experimenting and didn't believe, you know, to believe that you are an alcoholic. As somebody once told me, once you're a pickle, Ken, you can't become a cucumber. Well, I kept trying to become a cucumber. I wanted to be that fun guy that was a heavy drinker, but just didn't cross the line. But I was playing Russian roulette and the season came and I was still disciplined enough mm -hmm. to keep in line and my career going hard. And I had a God-given ability and body that could be put through a lot at the time. Something that Ken just said resonated with me. I was playing Russian roulette. 
That is how he categorizes his addiction. For those unfamiliar with this spectacle, that's the game of suicidal tendency where the rules include putting one bullet into the chamber that holds six, spinning it, placing it to your temple, pulling the trigger, and hoping your number is not called, unless that is what you want. Not all addicts are fortunate like Ken to be able to recognize a problem but still keep the party going. That's what many professional athletes from his era dealt with, especially in the NHL. What's the drinking culture like in the NHL? And did you have a drink of choice? Do you have your, <laughs> what was your beverage? And whatever was put in front of me, but I, hockey guys back then, it, and, and it's changed dramatically since my day. Kids take care of themselves so much better because they are, they are corporations now. The money they're making and the team's, uh, are on top of them. These kids uh, are so well prepared. You know, back then it was more acceptable, obviously. Play hard, party hard, the mentality. But beer, shots, you name it. I was a big beer drinker, obviously, but anything to get me feeling, uh, you know, get me out of my comfort zone. You know, a lot of it was, I was this life of the party type guy, but but I, I, I found out later after rehabs and and, you know, some therapy along the way that, you know, I had insecurities. You know, I was as I'm a pro athlete. I have the world by the tail and making good money. And I had insecurities. I was a guy that, uh, you know, as much as I believed in myself, and as much as I thought for the most part I was a good guy and people liked me. You know, it was did I like myself enough? You know, nothing was enough, Rex. I win the Stanley Cup championship, and then I was empty two months later. So I was always searching for more. I, I couldn't couldn't get that high. High enough. It, it was, if that makes sense to you, I just needed more all the time. And I found it through alcohol and, and I couldn't quite understand what, uh, what I was doing to myself and, and affecting my body and people around me as in particular family. Cause you heard a lot of people around you. I know when I struggled, when I finally went to rehab to try to get serious about it, you know, it was just, I realized Man, you don't even know who you are. You don't know what you like. You've only thing you've ever done is play basketball. You know, you don't yeah, that that is your identity and it was. I'm going to ask this this is kind of a long two-parter, but when was the first time you can remember thinking, you know, wow, I'm not in control or might not fully be in control of myself while drinking? I ask that because, you know, I've got that sort of personality, addictive uh I know what it's like when I first got opioids and how that felt. I knew, wow, okay, this is different. I like this, but I really, <laughs> I really like it. So I'm always curious with someone whose main issue, you know, that I know of was drinking since that wasn't my thing. Uh, and it's available everywhere, every store on ice, all of that. What was that process like for you realizing or not realizing, hey, maybe I'm not in control of this? Well, first off, Rex, I will say, I mean, yeah, you talk about addiction. I Anything put in front of me, obviously, uh, I always had to be aware of it. And, and if you can believe this or not, and I know former players and guys that I speak to, and uh, if I can help anyway and give back, and that's what you try to do along the way, former players or teammates, I have had teammates call me up out of the blue and said, Kenny, how the hell did you do it? Guys that watch me be the wildest man on the team and be the craziest guy and could drink more than most people in the bar on a nightly basis. 
had problems with opioids. I never took one pill in my life. Good so for I, you. Which it scared me. It was a subconscious thing. Even when I was getting hurt and there was very accessible pills and I kind of shunned away from it. I always said, no, I'll just take Advil. Whether it was my teeth knocked out, whether amazing. it was Ginsich, whether it was a shoulder uh, separation or that knee. When I hurt my knee in 94 and, and tore my knee ligaments, I stayed away from it. I numbed it with drinking, obviously. But there was something that scared me because I know I would have grabbed, it would have grabbed hold of me. And I know that how difficult that is. I've never like been through the opiates, but it's all relative. It's all the same. Addictions, addictions, addiction. That's exactly how I felt about cocaine. You know, the other stuff, all right, let me try it, whatever. But I've, I really felt, I don't know why. I think because of the way it was described to me always that, and I knew guys who played on it. <laughs> who never got tired. <laughs> and, I, I, uh, yeah. It had to be difficult, but oh, I had some late nights. I always had a rule. Try not to drink night before a game. And, and I stuck to <laughs> it probably about not, I'm trying, I, but I'm telling you Rex, probably 90% That's of the time. Great. That was kind of, that was my discipline because night before a game, I can't do it. But now if I went out two nights before, as I got older, it's, it still would affect me two, two nights, nights later. later. So uh, going back to your, in a roundabout way, your question is, when, when did I notice? Look, the seeds have been planted. If I reflected after everything was all, all said and done, I knew I was overboard back in, back in when I was 20 years old. It was a problem because I couldn't control my drinking. It was Russian roulette. I had the discipline like I had mentioned. Um, but Had to be I, kind of terrifying, though, at early 20s. You know, you look around and you go... I'm not going to, you're telling me I'm not going to party and drink with my friends ever again. I mean, that's a, that's almost, you can't even yeah. fathom that. And that's why I never went for help back then or thought because I, I juggled it obviously. But when it really took hold, 95 was the real year where I knew something was wrong and still didn't quite get it. Then to 97, I go away during the season. So obviously everybody knew and I was the first guy to go public. Let's talk about that for a second, real quick. Let's talk about that moment in, in 97 when you go to the uh, general manager's office, the devil's general manager. What do you remember about that day? Did you have a plan? How did the conversation go? I was scared to death, Rex. Um, going, what's he going to think of me? Look, when I went in there, Lou was like, and look, we'd had talks. He told me I had to curb my lifestyle for many years prior. So it's not like he was aware. He he was so aware. Uh, but he said to me, he says, Kenny, a few times he goes, damn. He says, I should trade you, you know, sometimes. I hear what you're doing. I hear how late you're out. He goes, but damn, do you come to play at 730? He says, I don't know how you do it at times. But he would always say, imagine if you get it put your your life together so he knew all along so when i went in there i'd been there he's a loyal man i'd been there a long time and and i throw in mr M dr mamullen who was my biggest supporter i was his first pick i wore the crest with pride i you know do anything to be a devil and again support our team whatever way i could so he, he was always going to be in my corner to a fault he almost <laughs> enabled me at times but i love the man god rest his soul and and both those guys were just right behind me and lou knew so when i went in there initially i was scared of that but i'll tell you the day after rex you get second thoughts. I was getting cold feet and going to run out, run away. But Lou said, no, you committed. You have to. Now he had already called the 
the NHLPA behavioral and substance abuse and so you know that the guys that were going to help me. So I was already committed. Now I had to go and get on that plane, and I went to California to rehab. And I went away for about two and a half months. This wasn't a month thing. They were going to tell me when I was ready to come back. So I missed half a season that year and came back and was so anxious to play. And I played and, and stayed sober about 16 months at that time, Rex, for a year and, and went back again a little bit gingerly, you know, because mm-hmm. I did have that discipline. But because at times I, I felt stronger, felt better, but I didn't feel I, when I went into a rut, I used it as a crutch. I wasn't playing very well. I go, screw it. I've got to be me. This isn't me. I, I, I'm not having fun in sobriety. I'm not having fun out of it. You know, that one foot in one foot out again. And I was just holding on again. And like I said, there hasn't been many first time winners, but again, all the seeds planted. And then when it really took hold, you know, I'd played in, uh, we won the cup in 2000. We win in 2003, and that was my going to be my last year. And I went out on top in a game seven. And during that time, I had good sobriety off and on, but I was still relapsing, going out, being me, being Ken, being the fun, crazy guy. Because I was a, I was a partier. I had to be in the action. I wasn't a guy that just sat at home and drank, and I drank like I wasn't this depressed guy. I, and it's all relative. I say, cause everybody goes through the same, the bottom line, it's addiction, but I had to be in the action. I was all alone in a crowded room. If that makes sense. It absolutely That's what does. Somebody Lou Lamarell used to tell me, he says, you're out there, you're the life of the party, but you're all alone in a crowded room. Cause you're dealing with your demons yourself and your insecurities. And that's what was transpiring. I love that man. <laughs> I love and, that. And then man. 2003 comes Rex. I, I go out on top. Game seven, my role's diminishing. What a way to go out. I was just so humbled and so grateful. I, I was in another lineup during the playoffs and knew it was over. I said, to go out on top, every athlete's dream. I go out on top 2003, but aha, now I don't have to be in shape. Now I don't have as much responsibility and let the party begin again. And it began and began and went. And then I'd stop again, feeling real bad, feeling guilty because I'd, I'd had the discipline to go two months and then I'd go back. And then now I'm going back and forth and going, what am I doing? I'm still with the devil's organization. I'm doing some broadcasting. I'm doing stuff in the community. They've been so supportive. And in 2009, Rex, and I'll fast track because I know this could go on forever. All good. All good. Take your time. With with battling this sobriety and and just the recognition that, Ken, you're an alcoholic. You need help. You can't do it alone. You're not invincible anymore. Those were the hardest things to deal with. And anybody that's... uh, an alcoholic addict can relate because I just, I was this big, strong, tough hockey guy. No way this thing has me. So I kept trying. I'm going, all right. And then I'd have a success, what I considered a successful night of drinking where I got home at one in the yeah. morning and I wasn't that bombed. That was successful. But I was playing Russian roulette because the next time it'd be 10 a.m. I'd be out. I could drink that long. I'd be out that long and and just crazy nights and, you know, People not knowing where I am and then curling up in bed, depressed, going, what am I doing with my life? And, and the devils once, you know, I got in trouble a couple of times. I'm going, they always stood by me, but you know, grow up here. I have to mature. I, they're not going to stand by me forever. You know? And I had that aha moment, the spiritual awakening. And yeah, I got my knees and, and prayed to the big fella. I said, it's got a hold of me again. 
please, God, take this obsession away. I'm not having fun with it. I'm not having fun without it, but I need to be comfortable in my own skin. Got on my knees, and I will tell you, my it was my girlfriend now, my wife, Margaret, uh, uh, my second wife, Margaret, you know, looked at her two days later, and I was depressed for a couple days, and and I said to her, it's over. And she says to me, I've heard this before, Kenny, and I, I'm telling you, it's it's going to be tough for me to stick around. Mm. I get emotional with it because she goes, uh, she says, Kenny, you are a wonderful guy, and you are a guy that you wear your heart on your sleeve, and you help people, and you're great to the fans, but you're not helping yourself. You are a mess. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I said, I'm playing Russian. This is just me. But at that moment, two days after my last bender, I said to her, I'm done. And she didn't believe me. I says, I won't say it again. And time kept going. And I, the obsession had left. I had asked God and he answered my prayer. And I said, a year comes, she goes, you weren't, you weren't kidding about this. You're serious. I said, nope. I said, I'm done, hon. Something happened to me. Something happened to me. Yes, I'd been to a lot of meetings. Yes, I had some great guys and other athletes that had, had some sobriety call me and talk to me, help me. And I did some, took some steps, but all the seeds were planted. I'd gone to three rehabs. I'd had some sobriety. She'd asked me after I'd said, I'm done. She goes, do you want to go to rehab again? I said, I'm not going to rehab again. I said, if I don't get this now and I don't take control of my life with help from everybody that's been through it before me, then, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and I knew that moment I'm not invincible anymore. You know, they say jail's institution and death, and now I believed it. And I didn't want to lose everything. I had young kids. I wanted to straighten my life out, and I'm going, imagine the person I can be sober. And I'm still a nut. I'm still fun. I still have a great time. But the obsession left me August 9th this year's going to be 10 years, Rex, and i probably as proud as that is my three Stanley Cup championships one day at a time, but... But again, I say have a little faith to anybody struggling, believe in yourself, because if I can do it, anybody can, but you can't do it alone. And I, there's no, anybody that asked me, what'd you do? I said, there's no magic potion. There's no magic wand being waved. I had to get humble. I had to have humility. I had to say, I need help. This thing has beaten me. I can't beat it. Beautiful. Did you love yourself? Have you learned to love yourself? Did I love myself? No, absolutely not. There was, I was running, I was hiding. I was not comfortable in my skin, as I said. So I believed in myself, which I think is a, an attribute I'd love all young athletes have, but you've got to love yourself. And today, yeah, I absolutely do. But uh, I love myself because I can help other people. I love myself because I'm there for my family. Uh, yeah, we all want accolades and we all want pats on the back i'd had enough of those you know yeah. and we all want success that's natural and, and rightfully so you work hard you have some success in all walks of life but now you know i've always been a guy that likes to give back and, and do charitable things but now it has more meaning i didn't understand why i was doing i was doing it because i was a pretty good guy now it i feel the impact because I love myself first now and I'm sober and and I'm responsible. And if somebody asks me, are you going to be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow? I'll be there. It's not guessing. You know what I mean? <laughs> when I make a commitment, I commit. You know? So those things are what's important to me now in my life. To have a reckoning and a rebound from self-inflicted addiction and alcoholism is now a badge that Ken wears proudly on his sweater sleeve. 
One sour moment that we touched upon but did not cross in depth was how on July 19, 2006, Mr. Devil was arrested on a DUI charge in Sparta, New Jersey at age 42, three years after his playing career ended. This left a mark on his criminal record and added another smudge on himself in the court of public opinion. Not long after was when his depression deepened. Ken chose to overcome, which is not the story for many, with his afflictions, unfortunately. Today, he's amongst the most celebrated and respected voices in the NHL, who still broadcasts for the Devils and gets to see his number three hanging in the rafters. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Ken, you're known as Mr. Devil. What does that mean to you? (laughs) 
I'm so humbled by it. It's amazing. And I go back to when I told you I was that blue collar guy. I think the fans could relate to. I was that in the trenches guy. I wasn't the star guy. I played with greats who I love to this day because team was everything to me. Marty Broder, a hall of fame, greatest goaltender all time. Scott Stevens, a ferocious defenseman hall of fame. Scott Niedemeyer, one of the best, the best player I've ever played with. And the game was effortless. I could go on, on Patrick Ellers. These guys were the stars of our organization uh, and the the main cogs in winning Stanley Cup championships what it was all about. But for me, I was that, you know, in the trenches, blue collar type of guy, like I said, and the fans could relate to me. And they respected, I guess, over the years, the fact that uh, I wanted to play for one team. I wanted to be a New Jersey Devil. The Devils organization were my family. I've been here 38 years in the organization, whether as a player, with all the problems we have discussed, whether as a player or in the community relations or the broadcast. I broadcast all the games now on MSG, which I love because I'm involved in the game and I root for the success. But when the fans aptly or whatever named me Mr. Devil, I was... I was kind of taken aback as I'm going, really? like, <laughs> And now I embrace it. You know, I embrace it because it means something to me. It touches my heart. And when I see it on social media or when I see fans at the game, hey, Mr. Devil, I'm, and you wave, and, you know, it kind of, it brings me goosebumps. I'm going, really? I'm Mr. Devil. That's pretty pretty wild, and I'm proud of it now. You know, in the old days, I would because of the guilt and shame, if I was drinking everything, I'd be, you know, I don't deserve that. I, I, I don't want that. My number was retired in 2006, and there's five guys' numbers retired. I was second behind our great captain, Scott Stevens. And I'll joke to people and say, which one of these doesn't belong? That Sesame Street kind of song. And I do believe that because from a talent standpoint. But what it shows, I go, I just, you know, I, I scratched, I clawed, I did whatever it took to help our team and my do my little part but it shows if you work hard and believe in yourself and have heart that you can get those same accolades as star guys like the stevens and rightfully so and the Needemeyers and broders like i said and guys that i still love today and are great friends we have a bond because we won three cups together and sergey breland uh, we walk together forever whether we see each other for a year or not and the devils like i said and no did i think i'd be named mr devil <laughs> absolutely not rex but i'm very proud of it <laughs> uh, you should be what's next for you ken uh and what are you hoping for in continuing to share your story on this type of platform well what's next i mean we're hoping to go back to normal from a sports standpoint it looks like our season will start on time i hope my devils get better but what's next uh, really Rex and the important things in life is just staying sober one day at a time, which I, I'm in a wonderful place, helping others when I can. And obviously, uh, there's one story I wanted to tell you for young athletes about Lou Lamorello when I said understanding your role. So so he takes me in. Oh, I, okay, 1989, he's only a year in his tenure as general manager. He was an unknown coming from Providence College as the AD and um, – he just commanded that respect. Certain people have that. So he had that aura about him, and he was an intimidating man. And I'm a defensive guy. I'm a physical guy. I have to fight sometimes. I have to protect teammates. So I get four games on the power play because one of our power play guys, Bruce Driver, is injured. I have four points in those four games on the second power play unit. So I want to do it all. All us young athletes think we can do it all. Now I can get... 
oh, great, I'm going to get a little more notoriety. I can pick up some points along the way because what? Everybody loves scoring, right? So I'm disgruntled. After Bruce comes back, I'm not getting any power play time. And I wear my emotion on my sleeve. Lou Lamarell after practice goes, Kenny, come into my office after practice. We need to talk. He goes, sits me down. What's troubling you? He knew exactly what was bothering me, exactly what was bothering me. I said, well, Lou, and I'm really fired up and I'm going, I have four points in four games on the power play. And all of a sudden I'm taking off the power play. What's up? I mean, I, I, you know, I produced, he goes, Kenny, he says, Bruce driver's back. He's the power play guy. It's pretty simple. He says, I liken my team to an orchestra and in order to make beautiful music, Everybody has to play their instrument. There's drummers, there's pianists, there's violinists. What category do you think you fall in there? Not a word of a lie. Exactly how he put it. And I go, I know I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I knew where he was going. I'm a drummer. He goes, and Kenny, by the way, he says, if you master that drum, you're physical, you're a penalty killer, you get plenty of ice. I want you to keep the puck out of the net. I want you to... Uh, protect teammates. I want you to protect your goaltender and block shots and do your thing. He says, because that is what's going to help us have team success. You understanding your role. You try to do too much and things that you're not capable of, then it takes away from what you're really good at. And if you master that drum, you're going to play in this league for 15 years. If you want to be a violinist, I will call 15 teams and see if they need a violinist. Exactly. I, <laughs> I exact words. I get. I get out of the chair. I throw the chair. Not many guys would would uh, challenge Lou Lamarella because he just was an intimidating guy. I had that fire, and Lou actually respected that, even though he would back you down, and you always thought he was going to discipline you. Or I threw the chair, was ready to slam the door, and. And he, that's when he said, excuse me, he goes, oh, by, very calmly, arms crossed. By the way, Kenny, if you master that drum, you're going to play 15 years in this league. So I slam the door. I'm angry. I'm, I, I'm pissed. I, I, I can't believe this because I want to do more. I want to be jack of all trades. I, I want to do it all. But I listened to him that day. Because I saw so many players better than me, guys from junior that I go, had a cup of coffee in the National Hockey League. Two years later, I'll go, what happened to him? He was so good. They didn't find their role. I found a role on a team, and I stuck to it. He didn't care if I scored. I was a, like a defensive lineman. My job wasn't to score touchdowns. Yeah, it's nice once in a while when you chip in, but I had a specific role, and that's why our team had success. And then when I retired in 2003, we had a press conference, sat beside Lou Lamoureux. I turned to him, and I said, just to piss you off, Lou, I played 20 years and he started laughing. <laughs> he knew exactly what I was talking about. I will see Lou Lamorello. He'd go to me. He says, Kenny, I still tell young guys the Ken Danico story. He says, I hope you don't mind me using it. He says, I still, I said, I love it, Lou. Cause he says, you were kind of the first guy I really had to have a serious heart to heart with. And, and a lot of guys, it sounds simplistic, right? The GM tells you what you need to do. The coach tells you what you need to do, but we don't always want to do that. And I was angry. I was an emotional guy. I was an intense guy. But I took guitar. I said, Lou just wants me to do my part and be part of something, and I will help the team win. And that was a big reason why I went on to have a long career. I probably would have been out of the league in five years with my abilities. That's coaching. That's teaching and leadership. That's leadership. That's leadership. You know, he could have said it to you any old way. He could have said it in front of the team, which you definitely wouldn't have 
<laughs> been, I would have been embarrassed. Right. Everything. He everything brought you else, in there. Yeah. He told you a whole story, and it so so much so stuck with you your whole life. You were humbled by it. You took that information, and even as emotional and immature and and everything as you were, it made sense to you. And that's that's leadership. Ken, it's been my pleasure, buddy. Please know you're my brother in recovery. And if you ever need anything, I'm always here for you. My door is always open. Thanks so much for doing this, buddy. Real honor to be on with you. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime because I got more. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm in. But I'm grateful, man. Grateful where I'm at in life and, and grateful you had me on. Thanks, buddy. Charges, sharing our run-ins with the law. Charges, athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges, every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges, we came a long way from living lawless. Charges, sharing our run-ins with the law. Charges, athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges, every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges, we came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.